Thank You by Ross Gay. If you find yourself half naked and barefoot in the frosty grass hearing, again, the earth's great sonorous moan that says, you are the heir of the now and gone, that says, all you love will turn to dust and will meet you there. Do not raise your fist, do not raise your small voice against it, and do not take cover. Instead, curl your toes into the grass and watch the cloud ascending from your lips. Walk through the garden's dormant splendor. Say only thank you. Thank you. Well, most of us, when we're confronted by loss, don't go around curling our toes, digging in, being fully in the moment and fully in the experience and saying, thank you. That's quite an advanced soul that does that. But the poem is a calling, right? To be present with exactly what's going on. And today I am having a really long conversation. I mean, we cut quite a bit out and it's still a long conversation with Christina Rasmussen, who is an expert on recovering from grief and loss. And in the pod, we talk about the macro losses, the big losses, you know, she lost her husband, for example, um, and that kind of bereavement is real, uh, but also the, something that she calls the invisible losses, uh, how we might be pasting over all of the small losses in the bucket of there's this thing that happened and many things that just don't go named. Christina Rasmussen is a Greek American crisis intervention counselor and an author. She's best known for writing Second Firsts, a book that introduced a new model of grief based on the science of neuroplasticity. And she's also created a grief counseling organization. She has uh, made something called the Life Reentry Model, which is based on her professional and academic observations of the bereavement process. And it's quite useful uh, as a new way of thinking about death. So please welcome to the Rose Woman Pod, Christina Rasmussen. So I got both of your books and I looked through them and the workbooks and so they're really impactful. Thank you. And I, and I appreciate that, um, you know, researching the work. Uh, my thesis, my master's thesis was on the stages of bereavement prior to my own personal um, catastrophes in life. And my master's, which I did in the UK, I wanted to become a grief therapist. And because I couldn't imagine ever losing anyone because I love people so much. And, and Christine, I can tell you love people a lot. I really want to address in the pod the things that stop people from being free or liberated mm -hmm. or living yep. their best life. And I've been, I just completed a two-year training program in collective trauma healing. And it is these things, these unresolved mm -hmm. griefs, these unresolved fears, uh, these belief systems that we inherited that don't serve us, that really stand in the way of being in play and reverence and possibility every day. I want to talk about sort of the journey between the first, the first book, the second book, and the mm. third book, because mm -hmm. you go, you know, you, you the first one, it seems to me, was really about like dealing with your own meta grief, like your mm -hmm. big grief. Mm -hmm. And then the second one uh, really looks like it's examining more of a relationship to the cosmos and the yes. universe and to death itself. 
yes. then the last one sounds like it's really looking a little bit more around uh, these the sort of pervasive quality of staying alive and staying true and all the micro griefs of life. Mm -hmm. And so just if you if you want to walk us through sort of how the three works, what's the through line for you yeah. and your own story there? What a great question, <laughs> Christine. Um, I love it. And it is a path and it, it is a path that I've taken. And I think in the beginning, the tragedy of the loss of my husband was devastating. Like I had died when he died. I couldn't understand how he could hurt so much. I was actually, I was 34 years old and, and the girls were four and six years old. And I remember thinking to myself, how is it possible that millions of people have experienced this? And nobody told me how hard it is. Like I had studied grief. This was completely unexpected. I was, I was going insane. I was losing my mind. And, and at the time, I, I said to myself, if I ever make it back, I'll go back and get everyone else. I'll find the bridge. I'll get them back. I'll get myself back first. And, and I spent the next few years working in the corporate world at a pharmaceutical company, a clinical trials actually company for pharmaceuticals. And, and I, that's when I first discovered that I was stuck. My life was definitely looking as if it was, I was moving forward. And I don't like those words very much, but traditionally speaking, I was moving into this new life. I was dating. I was, I was having a great career. I was making money. I, I had great health insurance for my kids. And because I, I wasn't working when, when he was sick and when he was dying. I, I didn't have a green card at the time. And so he was the one making the money. Um, another invisible loss for me was that the question was, could I financially support my children after he's gone? Because he was, a, he was the smart one. He was, he was a genius, not just smart, just that higher level <laughs> that um, only a few people are. And I couldn't believe that it was him that died. I said to myself, it should have been me. I, <laughs> It's, he's the better one. Why not take me? And that was my first thought when, when he was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, so young. And um, so that first book, Second Firsts, was, I, I, it was about the life reentry model, but through the lenses of tragedy and through the lenses of um, leaving the old life and finding the new one and not getting stuck in the middle. And would you believe I had found, I found it easier to help people with bigger tragedies than I was able to help people with those in what are called invisible losses. And I was shocked at that discovery. While I was busy working and running these classes and doing the work, um, the question, where did you go which is my second book was such a big part of my life and i had um for my own personal journey i had delved stepped into the quantum mechanics and and the the physics and space and and christine i was fascinated by it and i felt that i was hiding that part of me to the world because because i didn't i thought it was gonna it's going to hurt my credibility and I had built credibility with my work and I was changing 
the way we were defining grief. And I was using new words that people were using. And, and I said to myself, I can't possibly write this book. They will think that I've not lost my mind, but, but I will get hate for it. And, and I nearly didn't write it. But I'm not very good at hiding my true self. And I felt like I was lying to my community if I was not sharing these tools that I was using for myself. So I decided to write that book and, and HarperCollins loved the book. And I said to myself, well, it is meant to be that I have to write. This, is, this was the spiritual uh, part of the reentry journey. This was the part that, that life reentry in my first book um, did, not, um, did not even glimpse at. Um, the life reentry work is a very uh, third dimension, practical, logical, um, brain scientific model that is solid and I'm very proud of it, but it does not look into that um, existential cosmos world um that that i that i was living in and um and that's how that book was created and actually uh it did as well and and as fast as well as this first book i, I and even when, when i run my classes when i run the the temple journey classes which i'm actually finishing one tomorrow and i won't do another one for another year christine i'm very it's it's a it takes uh, quite the uh, energy space to run something like this, but they f that class fills up immediately, like immediately on the same day. It's amazing to see because people are are they they want to discover and they want to learn. However, I have received from that that work I've received the most hate for, than anything else in my in my career. Oh, anger, hate, also hate from uh, the Christian. Uh, the, Christ, um, the Catholic uh, world. What do you think the source of the hate was? It, well, so it's, it's actually, a lot of it has the same narrative. Um, so imagine multiple people saying to me that I was gonna go to hell for writing this. I know, right? <laughs> I was, and I was gonna live there for eternity. So they would use these words, they would write to me and tell me that. Others would say, why would you ever suggest that we read where do you go instead of the bible which i never did um they thought that it that would take the place of the bible uh, the bible was a big deal uh even though i never talk about it in my book i'm not um i believe in god i'm i grew up greek orthodox in greece like i don't not believe i i'm not here to tell people not to be religious in any way um but the main narrative was that um and these are the words from many people that that we are not supposed to talk to people who have uh, transitioned um, and that only God, we can only talk to God and not to them. And I found it fascinating, fascinating. And, um, and when a journalist, um, I guess, followed me around virtually without me knowing it and, and then wrote a whole article about it in the Catholic newspaper, I don't remember the main one, the name, um, I laughed because it blew my mind that it upset them so much. Um, and I said to myself, well, I guess I must be doing something right. Um, I was, this was the book I was the most scared to write, Christine. 
so scared to write it because it because it was just so unconventional and so considered out there but i believe i believe in this um in this other reality and in this deeper reality and i believe this is a hologram that this is not um this is not real this is we are projecting ourselves um here through it a deeper deeper reality that we're all connected in and because i believed in this so much i had to i had to share it with the world and um and then now as i'm writing this third book i believe that i owe it i owe it to the world to to help them redefine the darkest times of their lives and help them process them it's almost like and this means so much to me that I go inside their inner worlds and walk them, walk them out in 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 a light um, in many ways, and help them find their own way out of what has been confusing or lost or not easily uh, understood about themselves. I think that we have left people in the dark for so long um, that it's that is criminal. Is truly yeah, criminal. that, that um, national Catholic reporter, her piece was so transparent. Oh, did you see it? it? Yeah, yes. I, I saw it. It was a, it was a, it's a piece that, you know, has, is very rooted in believing that one's faith is the way through grief. Yes. And what I found when my husband's or when my partner's wife died, he said he he had such strong faith before that, and it actually made him turn away from God. That God mm -hmm. could take a good woman like that mm -hmm. when so many shitheads mm -hmm. stayed alive was basically mm -hmm. his thinking, you know. And um, and and so he turned away from his uh, his sense of being uh, powerful and connected to spirit in that window, and his healing came through a greater psychotherapeutic process and through sitting in silence and connecting to other realms and mm -hmm. the permanent endlessness of time space oh, and yes. that was um you know so so the idea that you're that that you can only find it through faith when you've built your life on faith and then it didn't work out that way i feel is a false premise and then she's also doing a little bit of maligning of you as mm -hmm. if you've built some grief therapy empire and i, I thought i thought that was like so weird the pricing on your thing is like a normal price for a weekend away and you know the uh, training is a normal price for a training and i was thinking like there's got to be like some like when you do that thing where you do rhetorical analysis and you consider the source there's something in her that doesn't want to trust no. and so she's yes. like all, all of the like the, and and i and she was all of the things she's saying are coming out of her own resistance Yes. to wanting to trust the process or seeing things that are outside of her faith that could be helpful. I mean, she even uses the word irreligious. I That's think we're right. longing for an irreligious uh, solution to grief. I read in, since Trump took office, there are 17% fewer Americans um, who describe themselves as Christian. Wow. The, wow. the, the it, it went from like 67% to, to 50% according to Pew. And because people are sort of like the religious thing is not helping us. And in yeah. fact, it is not helping us clarify our values or be kinder or deal with our regular problems of life. We're all putting on fronts to try to be some perfect thing uh, in the eyes of God when we're suffering. And there's got to yes. be more. And so this was, I would ignore that article. And also 
you know, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Catholicism in general with some of the deeper intentions, the mystical intentions. Mm -hmm. It's actually quite a mystical religion. Yes. yes. You know, in, at the, I remember after, I'll just tell a little story from my own experience there. Um, my, my, uh, I, I, I left the church a long, long time ago. And in the time after that, I went into yoga and meditation and chanting. And I did find my way back to a sort of form of mystic Christianity. But then I came um, to do my great aunt Ethel's funeral in the Catholic church. And they asked me to give a eulogy. And I hadn't been back since I started yoga and these esoteric practices. And now I'm in the pew and, and they're telling me to kneel and and pray and stand and pray and lift my hands up and pray. And I'm like, wow, that's awfully similar to mudras and yoga yes. or to postures that open the heart and make you more receptive to energy. And then they're doing the incense. And that's, again, used in the Hindu tradition and in, the, and, and in other esoteric practices. And they're doing the uh, chanting in almost a yes. monotone, which sounds extremely like mantra. And all of a sudden, it hit me that the priests themselves were having mystical experiences through these practices, and they had a different and embodied understanding of the space between us and the connection to divinity than people who were coming for an hour on Sunday and maybe <laughs> some like coffee hour and were going back into their daily lives, that these practices of accessing the timeless are cultivated, and that somewhere in the, in the kernel of their experience... It just got lost in translation and ended up being things that you just like copied and said and did, but never embodied. Yes. Does that make sense? It does. And you said it so well, and I think it's so true. And I think when I love how you, I never thought of it this way before and the way that you connected the dots in, in, in the way that we are in that space with the arms up, the same as in yoga. And, and I think that, that we have lost something crucial to that. It's, it's not a mystical experience anymore. And, at the end of the in the end of writing this book and putting through all these people through this portal and and, and the, the the other dimensions and hearing about their experiences and journeys there is a, a, a higher consciousness call it god call it whatever you want that is is incredible and and beautiful and wonderful and and naming it in a specific religion and in and and creating fear in people who are not who are also reading other books apart from the bible i think is is not christian and it's not religious it's not it's not what it, it, it should be it is something else it, it's not god it's not divinity and and i feel that that when people came after me from that place it never upset me because because of how opposite to what I, it was, it was as if they were telling me that they were all thousands of miles from where I was yelling and I, and I could barely hear them. But I did ask one person, I remember saying, I want to know more about what you mean about the Bible and why are you so angry at this book? I want to understand it. And this was in a public, on Facebook, in my public page and the second first page. And, and, and she said, thank you for asking this, Christina, because um, my church has helped me so much uh, get back up on my feet. I used to be homeless and drunk, and now I, I have my life back, and these people from the church help me. And when you come with your book and, and you're asking me to read something that's completely different to what 
I was taught in that church, I'm afraid of letting go of the foundation that has helped me. So it oh, had that's nothing. So to, interesting, right? I was I was yeah. so blown away by it because because I I just wanted to understand what, what what like I didn't expect this. How where is this coming from? Because it was coming over and over again. This was every day for a while, and and she said that that they helped her so much that. She feels like it's betraying them. She feels like she's afraid to, to trust something else that is not that. And then there were other people that said that it's the devil or evil that mm. that we are connected with when we are connecting the consciousness of someone who is no longer in physical form, that it's not the consciousness. Um, it is it is the devil's work. And these very mm. old-fashioned words um, that I actually never considered that it would be part of the narrative at all. It shocked me at the time, but it didn't hurt me. It just shocked me. Well, the people, the people that I have, I mean, just to say on that point that the only insults that really ever feel insulting are the ones that trip up something in you where yes. you think it might possibly be true. Yes. <laughs> you know? That's right. So you don't they, think it's true. You're more like, huh, that's weird. Yes, that was weird. And that was the, it. yes. And the invisibility, right? So for me, that was like, mm, I never said, don't read the Bible. Um, I, I used to respond like this, if we can speak to God, then how is it that we can't speak to the people who are supposed to be next to God? Like, why is, why is it so far-fetched that I can pray to God, I can connect with God, I can interact with God, and ask for things, do my thing, but connecting with someone we've lost is apparently out of the question. According to, well, it's also very Western, you know. Like I think you have all kinds of traditions where bringing the ancestors in and yes. helping the ancestors oh, yes. are like part of their as part of your regular course of life. Yeah. And then, and even in your evolution, you're half your mother and you're half your father, and you're the accumulated intelligence and wisdom of all of the generations before that. And so they're kind of living in you also. So. You might even in your resonance be tapping not only into that individuated consciousness, but into the wisdom that they passed forward yes. to you. Yes. You know? Yes. I check and in with my dad now and then. I'm glad. Hey, and dad. <laughs> what Christ is going on? <laughs> but Christine, you're Christina, you're you're an evolved uh, human being. I'm sure you know this. Like I've done many interviews and you have uh, confidence and certainty and and knowledge in the things that I'm I'm talking about. Most of the times, especially for the life range work, when I talk about the waiting room or when I talk about invisible losses or you know all the stuff that I mentioned, most of the times people, oh my gosh, I love the way you're describing this, and oh, I've never heard of this this way before. And, and and here you are, I think, because of all the studying you have done and all the experiences, life experiences, and places you went to, different, I'm sure, different cultures and different tribes uh, throughout your life, I think it shows that you can have a conversation about this in a level that that makes me excited, that I feel like this is a conversation. This is not me giving you any kind of education. This is me having a conversation with a new friend and Thank about, about something that we're both interested in. Yeah. Yeah. If you go back to the beginning, it's like what causes you the most pain and how do you liberate yourself from that? And when the trend, the traditional ways of liberating yourself from those things don't work, then you have to go and look at other options. And often you'll get a reconciliation with the original tradition or the original information. Mm -hmm. I found that over and over, like you don't throw out what you 
what you tried. You just go, that one's not quite working for me. But yeah, it's born out of searching, I think. Yes. I've, you know what, my, my earliest losses on the, what you call the big losses, the mm-hmm. metal losses, my, my, was my mother. She died when I was 11. <sighs> and that was, and that was a large loss that was yes. never named. There was yeah. never a funeral. None of that stuff there. And they just like everybody wanted to paste over it. You're young. You're just going to move on. And that unhealed stuff, like, you know, that took me 20 years to work through or 30 years to work through and, and, and to see how it showed up in so many places. And so now the practice is everything, you know, in, in our own lives, it's like what happened today is there anything that needs to be cleared from today? Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. On a daily, on a daily yes. basis so that you don't like get this accumulated pool of garbage. Yes. And um, it's a good way to live. Like I could die tomorrow and everybody would know where they stood. Everything is tidy up and clean. Good. But, but, but Christine, you said something really important, right? So, and, and actually this is a great example. And your the loss of your mother is that, you know, you lost your mother at age 11. It's, the traditional loss, but what took the way it was done is what the invisible loss is that is that that hurts you even longer term even more. That the, the, there was no funeral. There was there's the way that it was dealt with by the people around you. All the details of that, and I'm, I, you can't see it, but I'm moving my hands around it right now. That is the, there were multiple invisible losses that took place during that period of your life that, that is so important to name, to, to, to see, to process, to talk about as, as small as, um, a conversation that ignored the fact that your mother died or as big as you're not allowed to, to, to grieve or talk about her or, um, who was it? That, that that was um, orchestrating that experience. What was mm. their um, language? The the words they used, for example, um, anyone who was um, telling you about her passing in the way they told you, their narrative they gave you. That's that's. It's almost like um, like being in a maze and finding these parts and bringing them all the way out. Mm. They have they educate all of our relationship and, and the rest of our lives. And we don't even know it because they're so, and, and I love finding them. I mean, I'm, um, I love this part of the work. I love helping someone discover those, those words, those actions, those moments that are hidden in our memory vaults and, and understanding ourselves through them and why we made certain decisions. That's an amazing thing. Cause you know, even while you're talking, I was thinking the things I remember the most are late, not the actual death, but later moments of absence, like at a play I was in or something like that, yes. where, you know, there should, there should be a parent. And yeah. so it's, it's those little things that happen. And, and you just, you know, you're really naming something that's so subtle as a difference. Yeah. There's the, there's like saying there's this big swath of a thing, but that swath of a thing doesn't begin to encapsulate the uh the all of the things the the, the details that add up to it in yes, a way like it doesn't right. really help anyone understand no. what it was like and so this witnessing at the detail level is really beautiful it's the most important thing that that that's what we miss right in this in mm. this in the mental health industry like 
and, and I, someone wrote to me today about something their therapist said that was pretty good. And I said, oh my gosh, that is a good therapist. Like we need to educate our therapist to, to look for the deep, the, 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 the language, the details. If you're going through a major loss, let's mm-hmm. go to that first. Mm-hmm. There are some things in, there are some, there are some things that will make it harder and some things that might make it easier, mm-hmm. even as you go into it. And one is your view of the cosmos, your cosmology. Yes. Um, is my, is my person going to go to hell or heaven? Is my person going to be stuck in purgatory? Is they, are they going to dissolve and just be earthworms and have no spirit? So how does a person's cosmological perception of what is death impact the way they grieve? I believe that having their own experience and their own proof that there is life after death, to put it simply, is key. And why I believe, that, why I gave the driver's seat um, to the reader in my book. Because I could tell them, we could, we, we could take them to church, we could educate them, we could tell them, oh, look at all these dimensions, look at the hologram, read this book, um, go to a psychic, um, look for signs, you know, um, look for evidence through another person, another book, another religion, unless we have our own personal experience. Mm. It doesn't count in, in the way that it can um, and it can heal. So when people have their own proof and their own experience about death not being final, that can heal dramatically, Christine, like big mm. time. Like I've seen people go from maybe, yeah, but I don't know and I can't tell and I haven't even had a dream about them. I, what, if, what, what if that's it? They're gone forever, and I know what everyone is thinking and saying that we never die. But, but I'm not experiencing anything, um, and I wouldn't. I don't have the proof for that. That mm. can change everything. And there are people who cannot experience anything. Um, and to those which I, um, I, I'm upset that I, I wish I could help everyone have an experience for their own their own selves. Um, for those who cannot experience or find the proof. Um, I would rely on secondary experiences, meaning other people's indirect experiences, and 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 trust that until you you can have your own, because everyone I believe mm. has the ability to connect with a higher consciousness, with the consciousness of our the people that we've loved, um, with guides, with uh, call it entities, the energy that is out there, knowledge, um, information. I mean all the books you've written and all the books I've written and all the books we will write, everything we have ever done, it doesn't come from us. It comes from the collective. 100%. This 100% is not my work. That. This is not yours. This, this, We are just good at accessing something out there. And, and I believe that if we can do it, so can everyone else. Like everyone can do it. Well, okay, I love that you started with distinguishing between what's a mind idea of the afterlife or a dogmatic mm-hmm. idea and the framework of experience. That's yes. really great. So so first you start with the sort of what's the relationship between your understanding of death and your experience of grief? And then 
You also talked about sort of the very practical day-to-day micro and nano misses that spin off of that. Like, Mm -hmm. who am I now that this person is gone? How am I going to live? Like all of that shaking up your very, very foundation. And then this, um, you know, the, how do you begin again? And this, there's some people who get stuck forever. Yes. You know, I have people who've gone through a divorce and 30 years later, they're still not mm-hmm. recovered. So what do you tell people to do to get into the launching off point for coming out of yeah. that? I call it reentry. And um, I talk about the five stages of reentry and, and I've developed this and programmed this model, this process that um, has given even the people who have been stuck for a long time, glimpses of a new life, even moments of reentry, maybe not a whole day or a whole year, but their brain has found a way out. And what I say to those who have been in this, what I call the infinite loop of loss or sadness or anxiety, stemming from an experience that I cannot quite understand, um, is to first to find what, where this is coming from exactly because it's not just the divorce itself it's all the things we talked about once we do that we have to do what i call the plugging into the life that we want and and to do that we have to do it uh, in a way that um, i call it the sneaking out of the fear center so you know when most coaches and um life coaches and inspirational people tell you to jump and the net will appear and you you need to take a big step and believe and leap and you know start a new life scratch everything i actually don't believe in that at all at all it's actually very traumatic to the brain to leap uh, for someone who's afraid even of their own shadow afraid of um this thing happening to them again or they can't trust anyone and they can't trust themselves I ask people to start with something very, very, very easy, almost a known action, almost so simple that other people would look at it and wouldn't count it as a thing, as a, as a step out of the waiting room. Um, and when we start from nearly zero to do something that we haven't done before, to, to, branch out of the everyday looping experience of our lives, the anxiety, the, the, the beliefs, the, the, the trauma, the, all the things that have happened, we begin a new journey without the fear. And, and the fear will come at some point. Um, I say grief puts us in the waiting room and fear keeps us there. So we have to try to sneak out without being afraid. And that's hard to do, but that's the only way out. The only it's way out. It's such an American idea to want to make it a big gesture. I know, right? Huge. Yeah. Tony Robbins has made millions on like, let's do this, you know, let's go. And I'm like, by the, the time you leave you at the workshop and you go back and you try to change your life, most people actually are done within three days. And their waiting room pulls them back and you hide under the bed in the waiting room because because now you're even more afraid than before because you tried yeah i went really through big. a breakup and 
I was like, my first impulse was like, I'm going to move. I'm going to change my job. <laughs> yes. I'm going to just be, I'm going to like totally get in shape. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> you know? And then I was like, how about you don't move? You don't change yep. your job. And maybe mm -hmm. you go for a walk every morning yes. a little bit longer than usual That's and right. see how you feel because it's all a way of rushing away from the discomfort. Yeah. And the body can't handle it. And, you know, and then you just come out the other side, even if you do vastly improve all of those situations, you're still grieving two years later. Yeah, you know? exactly right. And, and and it doesn't, it doesn't work. So once you start to do that, then we have to, to look for tiny shifts in our yeah. identity and our life. Are there any benchmarks for sort of healthy cycles of grieving? Is there anything that if somebody's really healthy, in there and they're mm -hmm. cleared out they're not yes. carrying a lot of old trauma how long yeah. should it take for them to go through grief so the i call it the they have the re-entry brain right there's a, i, I want to do a phd on this i want to really study that i don't think a timeline is is what i ever look at there is no mm. there is no question of time for them because that's never an issue they mm. they do their thing um and find their way out the men uh for whatever reason um definitely superficially re-enter faster than women. They are, they are out there having new relationships, building new lives, getting new jobs, doing their thing. But we do lose a lot of men to suicide and depression. Um, but externally, it appears that they, they may have that, what I call the re-entry brain. Um, but I don't think they do. They really do. They, they, they're better at hiding and concealing the, the trauma and the loss and the invisible losses, especially. I think I cut you off when you were starting to talk about the stages of reentry. I think you only yes. got through the first, the first stage of the five. So there's five and the, and uh, one is the scene stage one. Um, you know, the stage, stage two is the, is the plug in, um, stage three is the shift stage four is discover and five is reenter. And there are, and I believe that people take them, do this work many times in their lives. And we re-enter from different things in different waiting rooms. And for example, when I nearly quit everything that I was doing, I was re-entering from the biggest depression of my life. And I couldn't find it at first, I couldn't know. And for me, my work was the survivor self trying to keep me stuck in this, in this life that it wasn't, mm. it looked good on the outside. It looked amazing. I have a great life. I created, I built it. I rebuilt myself. <laughs> I have an amazing life, but it didn't feel like that a year and a half ago. And I needed to mm. find out what it was. And I did. So those five steps and five stages are, first, you have to find out what you're not seeing, what is, what is hidden and what is invisible. And that part of the work is the hardest. Then once we find out those those stuck places, those waiting rooms, we have to look at ourselves within three personas. I call it the three selves, the survivor, the watcher, who's the witness, and the thriver, who's the kid. The survivor self is the loudest narrative that we have inside our brain, and it tries to keep us safe and just surviving. It makes us feel as if we're still in the battlefield and we're fighting mm -hmm. the war. And that voice and that narrative is the hardest to remove. And we can only remove it for a day at a time, minutes at a time, seconds at a time, because we have, um, we, we are, we are living our lives through that filter. 
Then the watcher who is the witness is the part of you, the wisdom, the knowing that you have and you've always had. It's the part of you that has has known you from day one and has witnessed every aspect of your life. When we're grieving or we are experiencing some a dark time in our lives, we lose that witness and we lose that voice of the watcher because the survivor self takes over the narrative trying to protect us. So we, in the shift step, we re-engage that watcher and witness and reframe and change the narrative of the survivor self. And then the final self is the thriver, the kid. We, I take people through an exercise to go all the way back to before any kind of loss and find that thriver kid that jumped in the lake and played with her friends. And there were people over the years you know, you know that thing they say 10,000 hours gives you a lot of experience. And let me tell you, even though I don't believe this for everything, I, I have witnessed so many stories. But out of, let's say, 100 people, I would find five or six that have never met their kid thriver self. And they could never remember or recall a memory where they were happy before loss in their lives. Wow. So I know I was blown away by that. So we had to create that kid thriver self here now because we couldn't thread we couldn't connect them to that to that uh, embedded thriver self that was just silenced because of the loss and so on so we help those folks um play again and um yeah, play play and reverence those are my yes, yeah. two themes of this year you know i want to i want to just speak to this the modeling that you've done around end of life is all of this or around grieving in particular, the only model that I ever was familiar with was over 50 years ago, the Kubler-Ross model. Yes, that, yeah. And that only goes up to the point of yes. accepting that something is yeah. different or has changed. It doesn't say, how do you get back on your feet again? So this is kind of like the yes. first model that I'm hearing yeah. that says, oh, Okay, then after it's all done, you've accepted it. It's real. They're not coming back. No. You're not getting the job back. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you are an addict. Whatever it happens to be that you're grieving. Yes. So you've you've accepted it. So that's the baseline of the starting point, and then you enter into this new model, which is say, all right, now the work begins, and let's let's use this opportunity to make our lives even better than they were before. Um, Yes. And and basically use the 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 shocking event or the micro grief or whatever it happens to be for a step up into a new and freer life. Yes, and and Elizabeth Kubler Ross, I, my thesis was on her stages. And people, when our when second first my first book came out, they said you picked up right after where Elizabeth left off. And and I said this was exactly and as you said, Christine, my thinking. I'm like, okay, I've accepted it. It happened. I'm not in denial anymore. I'm angry. You know, now what? You know, and I feel like swearing because a lot of people are in this place where like, okay, <laughs> a year has passed. I'm mourned, I grieved, I cried, I screamed. What am I supposed to do? And then the, the sentence which kills me every time I hear it, time heals all wounds or, or grief never ends. I mean, oh, that narrative and that belief system that we are being thrown the throwing this at everyone is 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 wrong it is wrong to be told that it's not that grief never ends it's it's that we have entered a new juncture in our life that 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 has this experience um as part of a filter that, that we're seeing everything through 
and who we are after such dramatic losses, big or small, is is changed forever. That doesn't mean that grief lasts forever. You know, I and you know when I look at the complicated grief symptoms and people are um, you know told that you have complicated grief, I'm like, this is just the waiting room. They're stuck in this limbo place. They don't know where they are. They're craving their loved one. They're not all this. They don't take care of themselves. They have no self care. Like this, these, this is the waiting room symptoms. That's not. Um, that's not a pathology. And the only pathology I've seen in in grief, Christine, is, um, and I'm going to try and say this in a way that doesn't offend anyone or hurt anyone. Um, the people who have had mental illness or suffered deep depression or have had other prior events in their lives that um, that they couldn't uh, come out from, they need other resources and other mm. help to help them through it. Yeah, and I wish I could help. It, it didn't come, it wasn't, I remember walking into this, to this work from, you know this traditional place but then my own experience was was altering that traditional place and and i'm such a visual person i needed to understand where the heck i was uh, in the journey and and why i created the model and the way that it's done which by the way is on clinical trials right now so hopefully no hopefully i know for a fact that one day in the near future it will be uh, accessible to everyone um but but we had it all wrong we had it all wrong christine um and we found we, we keep focusing on these bigger experiences um that are traditionally considered uh difficult and we refuse to look at the tiny smaller but invisible ones because we don't think they're important. And that lack of validation and the lack of um, acknowledgement actually is the trauma, is the traumatic experience. Because we end up, um, we absolutely end up leaving people on their own. They're, we are isolated from each other because of that. It's a, I, I was telling this the other day to someone that I have received thousands of emails and letters from people about their lives, their inner worlds. And it was almost as if I had access to, to this inner journey and everyone was saying the same things in unison. Mm -hmm. Everyone is alone. Everyone is struggling with something that is invisible and mm -hmm. they don't know how to share it, what to say. I'm writing my third book right now about this, about the invisibility. And as I was writing one of the chapters, I had to share a personal experience. And I said to myself, oh my goodness, it is much harder to share something like this than it was to share the tragedies of my life, Christine. And this is for everyone. Hmm. Everyone feels this. So I'm really Super. So, so you're also saying that people think that their experience is unique, and they're alone in their experience, and they hold it to themselves. When in fact, it's universal. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I'm really interested. Like, what are some examples of of that uh, of those kinds of things? You know, the loss of identity. 
the loss of mm-hmm. self, the loss of knowing of ourselves is one of the biggest ones. The other one is the loss of boundaries. And would you believe that people pleasing and when we have an invisible loss that has to do with being abandoned by a parent um, or a friend or family or from wherever it is, we then do everything we can to bend over backwards to please people so they don't leave us. So we have millions of people, Christine, millions and millions of people who are experiencing grief due to the to the pleasing they have done in their lives, pleasing someone else versus pleasing themselves, saying yes to something they wish they had said no to, um, living life to make someone else happy, happier than themselves. And these choices, some of them are small. They start small, or maybe I'll just I'll just go to this to this dinner. It's okay. I'll I'll go there. They need me there. They want me there, and and I can't really say no. What would they think if I said no? It starts like this, and it ends up being some people live their lives for other people, completely and totally. That is devastating. Devastating, Christine. That's one, one, and there's many others, but that's that's one that is hard to see from the outside, and and once you look at it from the inside it's completely different another one so, go ahead you're sort of gradually you're 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 sort of gradually losing the dharmic purpose or the essence mm-hmm. of yourself yes. and getting more and more shrouded in expectation yes and that's a little bit of a death of the self i think yes. a lot of people experience that when they are parents the once they go into, yes. you know, stop working and going into parenting. And then they experience it on the reverse when they've committed their life to having children and then the children leave home. Yeah. So you have, I, I mean, I think I think it's probably more visible at these juncture points. But um, what I hear you saying is it's not so cut and dried. It's more of a gradual accretion over time. And, and then all of a sudden you're in a whole new land and not an understanding why you feel so stuck or under leveraged and you and it's hard to um correct if it's probably the wrong word but change it or or change course because your brain everything i've done so far has been based on brain science because i believe that it runs our lives it's like a software code a default setting so your brain has made this concrete landing in, in a way that the way you are you are interacting with people and events and jobs and careers and and children in your life that considering um, a different option your fear center gets activated and I call that part the survivor self um, and and I'm smiling because everyone has that uh, even now and again sometimes I someone in my class or someone I've trained says I don't have a survivor self, meaning the fear-based decision-making experience. And I'm like, yes, you do. It's just your survivor self is so good at what they're doing. You don't even know it's there. <laughs> and and it's I, I have had... Oh, that's a laugh of recognition. Yes. it's, it's And the, the more intelligent you are, Christine, and, and I say this to myself all the time, my survivor self has excelled, uh, has had me working around the clock, um, 
achieving and accomplishing and helping people thinking that I was thriving. But the whole time I was actually choosing to opt out, opt out of my own life. So for me now, you know, in life reentries, it's about being present and, and saying yes to things that I only want to do. And, and I live my life like, like this now all the time. And when I kind of move away from that, even just a little bit, I really check myself. And because this is not the way I want to live. It's catastrophic. It's, it causes depression. For some people, it causes suicide. Christine, it's that serious. Saying yes to things that you're a no for is is almost suicide inducing. So some people say yes to relationships, marriages, mm. Um, mm. careers. You have uh, when you look at the most successful people in the world, the most successful people in the world. I have learned. I used to see. I don't do it anymore. I, I chose to not have private clients about three years ago now. But I, I have, uh, I've helped some of the greatest minds, uh, some of my own role models, and I have seen behind the scenes and and the struggle um, of success is is quite something. And I think that a lot of people not only suffer from this invisible invisible grief, invisible um, pain that they cannot really share, or they don't even know what it's what it's about because we. Are not we have not given them the skills to process it that they stay in this place stuck in the waiting room stuck in that place in between until they die they die there millions of people die there it's so interesting that all of these religions um have the words purgatory or bardo mm -hmm. or these waiting room spaces yes. um half alive half dead not quite yes. not quite in one realm or the other and uh, that that idea that after grief or after accumulated invisible losses that you're just, you know, not really there for people or for yourself in the way that you could be. And, mm -hmm. and if this is indeed your one precious life, then what a sad state of affairs. Yes. So um, do you want to go through a couple of the other examples of invisible loss or should we go on and start talking about the methodology to get out of the Bardo? <laughs> you know, it's you know it's funny because um, so whenever when I do these classes or you know when I when I do the my work, um, one of the amazing things that happen is when people are in groups and they hear someone's invisible loss and their validation of it and acknowledgement from the group that triggers something in them. Uh, I remember. I want to give another example, and, and I want to give a, a unique example, a strange example, something that you may not have heard before, because I want everyone who's listening to this to not look for the staples. Because sometimes, let's say, I say, people, everyone, this class is for invisible losses, and I describe what that is, I define it, and people will still write to me and say, I haven't lost someone to death, or a pet, or a parent, can I still join the class? It's almost like the brain rejects the information. So I say again, yes, <laughs> yes, this is for you. This is not for someone who's lost someone to death. This is not for traditional based losses. So I wanna share another example, um, and I've heard thousands of them. I have th uh, hundreds of invisible losses myself. Another one, someone in my community uh, responded to a post and said, my invisible loss is that I can't hold my partner's hand now that he's 
past. So every night I go to bed and I hold my own hand. And mm -hmm. under that comment, Christine, we had hundreds of people say, oh my God, I do the same thing. In the darkness of the room, in the middle of the night, someone sharing something that cannot be seen by anyone else. And because of that, so many others can say me too. I am actually doing the same thing. It could be, another example could be, let's say you just had a child and your loving husband who adores you and your beautiful baby goes to work and now you stay home because you're on a maternity leave or you're taking a year or two out, whatever that is for you. He comes back from work and he talks about a colleague and shares her jokes and mentions how smart she is. In that moment in time, you're sitting there with your still maternity clothing or your pajamas, um, exhausted, looking like crap, afraid, probably a little depressed, having gone through the birth, my huge experience of your life. And your husband comes home, revitalized from work, having spent the day with a colleague. You can't even, he's not having an affair. He's not even having an emotional affair. He's just sharing a joke. She said that he marveled at it and laughed at it. But inside of you, you're feeling insecure and sad. And you go in the bathroom and you cry your eyes out. Nothing happened. Nothing bad has happened. Your husband still loves you, but you feel alone and isolated and not beautiful. That you've lost that the laughter that you had with your husband, that you were the one that made him laugh all the time. But because the last two months you have been sleep deprived, you haven't had the, the humor <laughs> to, to crack a joke. And you, that is an invisible loss that you probably don't even say to anyone or share to anyone because it may sound silly. There's a piece in the way you're describing these things that's so tangible. You know, people might say, oh, I, I lost someone or I lost my identity, but those are very hard to attach to. Yes. You know, you know, I don't, but if you say, I miss him holding my hand or mm -hmm. I miss the way he pours his coffee in the morning or mm -hmm. all of the little intimacies. Or if you say, I miss being a independent woman and full and feeling my power. Um, those are, you know, and, and seeing my husband come home after a day like that reminds me of that. You yes. know, those are so tangible. They're very relatable. Yeah. And there's so many of them. And, and the thing is the danger in that, and someone who's listening might say, well, okay, yeah, sure. What's, what is that traumatic? How is that a loss? How is that grief? So imagine this happens once, then something else happens a month later, and then your brain is starting to feel this horrible place where you're afraid that you're going to lose your spouse to someone else. Because when you were a teenager, your boyfriend in seventh grade um, made out with your best friend. And everyone told you that this is just a teenage crush and you need to move on. And you did. But then that experience was so catastrophic for you as a child, as a teenager. For you, that was your first love, the first time you kissed anyone. 
you felt maybe your kisses were not good enough. And that's why he had to go and kiss that other girl that was funnier and prettier and smarter than you, according to your brain. And now here we are, something is reminding you subconsciously because there's a loop inside your brain. There's a loop that you stayed on early on in life that is being triggered by another experience. So it's a thread and it keeps connecting on and on and on. Um, and uh, later on, if that is not talked about or shared or validated, whether it's you with your spouse or your therapist or your best friend, if you don't cleanse this, you don't process it, you reframe it, understand where it's coming from, you might end up you know, being that insecure woman that you never were. You might end up being that um, you know, angry and, and, and lost person that only identifies with, with life when her husband looks at her and finds her pretty. It could be, it's just the list is so long of what can happen. You might end up going through a divorce. Your husband may want know when I come home after a while because, because he feels like you're mad at him and he doesn't know why. There's so many um, reasons and, and ways in this can influence your life. Look at the details of your conversations, especially for people who can read other people really well. For example, I'm a very good reader of other people. I read the silences in people's voices. I am a pattern finder. I, I, I'm like a detective because that's how I survived in my life. I, I, don't, I didn't like people lying to me. Anyone lying to me, I, I couldn't be with. So I look for every tiny little detail that is taking place that, so I can protect myself if I don't talk about what I'm seeing and I'm holding it in, it's much more catastrophic inside of me than outside of me. Well, is there a big difference between what we would generally call traumas or is invisible loss the same as a trauma then? Because some it's, of these things like, like being, a, being um, you know, I think earlier you used the example of being accosted on the playground or mm -hmm. feeling cut off from a boyfriend or something mm -hmm. like that but those those are not often referred to as losses so i'm interested right. in how you got to relanguaging them yeah and versus trauma yeah and, and redefining hopefully grief during the way i am trying to explain this to the world and and changing that language it is not trauma in the way the world is defining trauma so we can't compare um you know, uh, let's say someone verbally saying something that hurt me because they didn't like my skirt at school or whatever that small thing is. We can't compare that with um, sexual abuse of a child. We can't. So I would not call them trauma. And I don't uh, because they're not, they cannot be compared with the formal definition of trauma in the mental health industry they are invisible losses and and a loss the way i define a loss is is that we lose a part of ourselves however small it is when this experience takes place and it is it is a part that is lost without anyone knowing anything about it including ourselves so it's an invisible event but it's not just an event and it's not just a memory, 
So the reason why I'm using the word loss is because we have lost something in that moment in time. And it did break our heart. So it has to break our heart. So if it doesn't break our heart, then then it's it's not it's not a loss. When it breaks our heart, and we cry, I, I will give you an example, actually, another one that I haven't put it in the book yet. And my editor is like, you have to put this in the book. Um, all right, here's here's a personal example. And and it's not that I struggle sharing this. I've shared it a couple of times, but but it, it, it is it is it's hard to share these invisible experiences. I was in a big city, and I'm not going to say where, but I was in a big city um, being invited to this thing with some other authors and peers um, from the same publishing house. And we were supposed to go for dinner. And someone decided that I wasn't, uh, what's the best way to say it? Um, this is probably in 2013. That's a long time ago that I shouldn't be there because just, I shouldn't be there. So they sent someone to uninvite me from this dinner that I had flown in for. And it was done in front of the other people. <laughs> so this person comes and walks to me and says, I'm sorry, but I feel so bad about this. I mean, and this person, I struggled with what happened that she was the messenger of this of this thing as well over time she she would apologize she would she would write to me and apologize about it and i was uninvited uh from this from this dinner because maybe i wasn't famous enough well known enough i don't know worthy enough who knows what that is and it was very polite and done really well and i went off my way and they went off their way and i cried my eyes out christine I walked all the way to my hotel and spent the last two two hours there crying and crying and crying. I didn't know what I was crying about. Should have been well, just it's angry. It's un it's unfair and it's uh, insulting and it's embarrassing and it probably taps into something deeply embedded about not being worthy. Yes, you know that's, exactly. That's, I mean, yes. first of all, what an obnoxious thing to do. I know. There's always room for another place. <laughs> like, can I just validate you right now? Thank you. <laughs> Terrible behavior. It was. It really was. <laughs> but but I'm sharing this, and it was. I was so embarrassed, and I was so um, just devastated by it. And I and I and I remember thinking, hey, what what's going on? You've been through hell and survived it, right? Like this is nothing. But because I had an invisible loss of worthiness that I didn't feel worthy. And that triggered that loss of worthiness, and and there's so much in my childhood, and so much in in other ways that we can we can we can discuss. But ultimately, that was an invisible loss. And so what? Okay, so I got invited uh, for this dinner. In in Christina, in in my where I am today in this life, in I've had many reentries since then. I would say, oh wow. Well, I'm sorry that this is like that, and and I would I would see it as a I, I would probably laugh a little bit, smile. I, I would find it educating, and 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 I did say that at the time. I hope I never become like them ever, never. And it was an educating moment, but I would certainly not cry my eyes out now because I had to process so much of of my own worthiness and who I am in this world and why I am the way I am and and and. And I used to think for a long time that, that I don't know, someone pinched me. 
I can't believe I get to do the work that I do. Do they know maybe, maybe I'm not good enough, right? It took me a long time to believe in, in what I was creating. So for me, that moment in time, not being invited or uninvited from the party was as devastating as it would have been if I was a teenager in high school. It's such, it's such a careful process to witness at that level. Yeah. Okay, well, we've been talking for an hour or something, even with the interruptions, which is crazy because I have tons <laughs> of other questions around like creativity and the source of creativity. Yes. Oh, and all yes. of the other things that you were yeah. mentioning. If people were to have one little bit of freedom or liberation more in their beliefs or their bodies, what would you recommend that they do based on your work? One area of freedom. If, if, I, if I would choose one thing from everything I teach for, for everyone to do, that's just one thing. Yeah. Um, every morning when you wake up to grab your journal and do a grief cleanse and ask your grief to come out and talk to you and you need to let your stream of consciousness remove all of the narratives, the things that are occupying your brain because these are the loops. We are, you're looping. We are all looping in this in these cycles. This is not real life. The brain likes to go into default. So when we get up, we grab a pen with our cup of coffee and just write whatever. It's like the junk in our brain and we need to cleanse it all out from the beginning of the day and then end it with, um, with a refrain in the end. Look, for, the, look for that pattern. Um, look for the loops for yourself. Find the code the survivor self is, is giving you every day and change it. This. I've change been doing the a, code. A I've been doing a gratitude journal every morning. Yes. You know, and I think by adding the grief piece, um, that's a little bit of shadow work, that that would make it so much more powerful. And gratitude journal, the gratitude daily, it's amazing. It's, it's one of the most powerful things. But for this, for, for this is, is the grief cleanse. And then, and yeah. then, and to, to teach yourself to look for the loopings, the repetitions. These are, these are the codes. These are, this is what someone else is dictating our life. And that is the fear center of our brain. And if we can unravel that and reframe it, rewrite the code, we will win. We will get out of the waiting room and create a new life. Well, this is so, you're so full of hopefulness Aww. and scholarship, all Thank three you. of the books. So I can't wait to see the third one actually. Thank but you. this, this is a, a, I love also, can I just say thank you to you for turning your grief into a public good mm. instead of losing yourself and um, or just doing it for you. I do believe that one of the signs of our collective growth and evolution is when receiving for the self alone is no longer uh, joyful or satisfying. Yes. That yes. when we receive a message or creativity or an impulse, that our, our first impulse is how do I pass it through and give it to as many people as yes. possible in the hopes that it's useful. And, um, and that, that idea that you can have a traumatic experience and instead of being killed by it or maimed by it or permanently disabled by it or something, you turned it into this body of work is amazing. Thank you, Christine. So, and thank you also for what you do and, and the life that you've, you've lived so far and the many experiences you've shared with the world and, and I, I can't wait to, to get to know your work better as well. And, and I'm so glad that Michelle brought you in my life as well. So thank She's you for today. Gem. Yes, she I is. Think I'm, um, I have a new book coming out too, but this is off. This is, it it's, uh, just went up in pre-order and it's oh. on something totally unrelated. It's 
a collection of what's called the nine gifts. Oh. And it's got uh, the gift of nature, the gift of breath, the gift of movement, et cetera, et cetera, that you are, you've been given as a natural biological response to life. All of these things that are free, that you can do at a moment's notice to change your state of mind. And it's some of my writing. And I've interviewed about 25 people for the book who have specialties and things like mantra and service and creativity and then quotes and all kinds of little micro interventions. I, and then I, I found a friend who's a painter to paint the <gasps> portraits of the people who are wow. featured in the book. And so it's actually like a beautiful, colorful coffee table book, like eight by 10. And um, when is it coming out? So, when is it coming out? Four weeks. <gasps> how? Oh my gosh. How do you feel? What, like this is like pre-launch period. How for do you. I feel like I, I feel like I'm just given birth. That's how yeah. I feel. Like a little sore and a little exhausted <laughs> and not really pretty. Oh my god, it's a big every time we give birth to a book, like it's a huge it's a huge experience. Like I four weeks before and you're sitting here interviewing me, my God, I I would be like in this is and I love the title. I love it. The pot the podcast is my favorite thing I do. It's like it's yeah. totally I know I'm doing it for the company and all that stuff, but you know, the privilege of getting to talk to women in particular who are doing great work of their lives and, you know, get that out there is so, it's such a joy for me. And and writing, and in this book, this is interesting on what you said about the wounding. Mm -hmm. Like when I, this is the first book that I've written where it was like just a hundred percent my personality. Colorful, joyful, wow. reverent, trusting and faithful in nature. Like all of those things. The other ones were good books, but they were all posing to try to make the masculine mind approve of me. Yeah. That's a re-entry moment for you, Christine. That is it's a, totally it yes. completely is. Like those books were like, oh, I wanted to write about this moving seeking of of like the mystical space, the reverence, the connection, but I ended up having to like, you know, cut it in with all this neuroscience, you know, yes, to make it right. legit to the yes. men in my circle. Yes. And the same thing with like the book on activism. Great, really good stories, good books. But but I was still like trying to be a serious person. And you know what? I'm just not. <laughs> I'm not. You and I are I'm so a alike. Funny person. <laughs> I'm a I'm a fun person. I'm a creative person. I'm yes. a mama. But I'm not a serious person. So there you go. Now I'm writing books about the things that are really true for me. Be joyful, be reverent, play, love this life. Like this is what you, you, you are brought to life through bliss. The universe yes. wants to see you and, yes. and like what, and that's, you know, so I'm glad you, I bet none of that is for the pod, by the way, but this is what it feels like. I'm having a re-entry. That's You right. are, you are. And, and actually what, I, and I hope in your, in your interviews and your, your market and your launching, you do talk about what you just shared with me about, about you choosing to, to, to write the book that it's just you. See, this is you. This is all you. This is this is not about people pleasing. Remember the invisible losses of yeah. our lives. This this is about just pleasing yourself and helping people along the way at the same time. Yeah, and it's it was interesting that in pleasing myself, what I wanted to do was amplify other people. Yes. You know, the interviews in the book, like I can't know it all, but what I can do is tell you that there are people in all of these realms know something that will free you up and and look at them and let's celebrate them like the whole thing is about upliftment but to lose the shadow of wanting someone else's approval oh my god um and particularly who's the invisible 
reader. It's like that story about being uninvited at this dinner, me crying my eyes out because they were supposed to be these esteemed authors and I was supposed to be there with them. It's amazing how we 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 put ourselves through that. And it's not surprising because of because I've discovered all this invisibility, but you, my darling, are coming out. This is the beginning of a, a beautiful chapter for you, like an amazing chapter. Well, I will take this, your mouth to God's ears, and I'll take that blessing, baby. Oh, it, it's already done. Um, it's already done. It is done. It's it done. done. It's done. <laughs> We're just accessing, you know, there's no time, right? There's no time. It's already done. This is already done. Our conversation was already done as well, right? It, it happened before it even happened. So, um, and I can't well, wait. Thank you. I'm going to pre-order the book. I can't wait to read. I can't wait to have you on my podcast as well and to talk about everything, about all the nine gifts and all your whole life because I think you have lived a big life. I, I indeed. Well, thank you. I'm really happy that oh, we did this. Oh, yes. Thank you, Christine. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rose Woman Pod. I'm Christine Marie Mason, your host. The pod is brought to you by Rosebud Woman, a company I started in the intimate skincare space. You can find our amazing products at rosewoman.com. Vegan, plant-based, pure, effective, all the good stuff. The guests and I imagine people out there when we do these shows and think, how can we bring one little bit of insight, one little lever to create more spaciousness or happiness out to the world. So if you like the pod, you know what to do. Please share it, rate it, review it, subscribe, all of that stuff so that we can feel your love and support and keep doing it. Have a wonderful day no matter where you're at. May the grace and joy that rests at the center of you be readily apparent. <laughs>